Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And my sidekick over there is Jim Shorney. Good morning. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to start off with Charlene with Pet Talk with uh, Dogs and Cats for Adoption from the Capital Humane Society. And we've got uh, Brent Rains and uh, his interesting segment, What is Reality? Our main guest today is in studio. His name is Taden Bundy. He's written a book called Beyond Lincoln, A History of Nebraska Hauntings. Well, if you're like the Colborn clan, uh, you indulged yourself on Thursday and Thanksgiving, and you ate a lot of great food. And I swore when I woke up Friday morning, I probably wouldn't be hungry. I was, <laughs> you know, back on the same old thing. So, But uh, I hope you and your family had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, we indeed have a lot to be thankful for. Let's go to Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. She should be right there. Hi, Charlene. Good morning. How are things going at the Capital Humane Society? Things are going really well. We're so grateful for all the people who have come out and uh, adopted, and we are looking forward to meeting new adopters today. We've got great dogs, cats, rabbits, guinea pigs, all looking for wonderful homes. What is the holiday run? Is it true that they have people that have like meat packs hanging from their belts and they release all the dogs and the dogs chase these guys? <laughs> it's a little <laughs> bit different. <laughs> well, what's the holiday it's run about? So it's a really nice fundraiser for us. It's going to be December 8th at Pioneers Park, and you can learn a little bit more and register by going to our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. Uh, you can bring your pet along with you. It's a fun, festive day. They encourage the runners to have festive attire, so it's a very happy day. <laughs> yep, and uh, hopefully pictures will be posted after that date uh, on the website. That'll be fun to look at. Hey, speaking of pictures... We are at CapitalHumaneSociety.org, and I've just called up the cats and kittens for adoption. You'll see little thumbnails there at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. You can click on that and expand Omatic. It expands into a little bit of a, uh, a text about the, the cat or the kitten and a little bit about them. So with that in mind, let's go to Charlene and see out of her magic hopper who's the first cat she's going to talk about. We will talk about Africa, and she is an exotic-looking cat, about three years old, domestic short hair, a little bit bashful, but as soon as you show her a kind touch, she's very nice and is looking for a home where she can relax and just be comfortable. Oh, yeah, looks uh, looks like a calico mix there of some mm -hmm. sort. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful cat, uh, Africa. Very pretty. She's our first leadoff cat today, Cats for Adoption on um, Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. This is Pet Talk, and we're going to talk about lots of good pets today. So Africa's our first cat. Next up is her buddy. And that is Nala. And Nala is about three years old, also has short, shiny fur, bright eyes. Uh, she can also be a little bit bashful, so she's looking for a family that will be patient with her so that she can come out of her uh -huh. shell, and she wants a home where she, her companionship will just be cherished. <laughs> look at that look on her face. It looks like she's ready to go. Uh-huh. <laughs> Again, a beautiful cat, great markings. Um, 
I love that sort of tuxedo chest black there. Black and brown. It looks and like she's got uh, sort of a vest on with a little tie on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful cat. Nala, N-A-L-A. Are you folks from Nalans? You might like <laughs> Nala here. So. Well, that's a stretch. Africa, Nala. Oh, I don't think so. I think folks would enjoy her a lot. So take a look at Nala's picture. She's got a friend whose name is... Next up is Robbie, and Robbie's about a year old with medium-length fur, white and black, a really adorable cat. He has a little stub tail, too, so it makes him extra cute, and he hopes his new family will be stopping in today to adopt him. If you can't have Robbie the robot, you can have Robbie the cat. (laughs) There you go. I have a friend whose name is Robbie. This would be a great cat. They could have, like, stereo Robbies that, uh, in the That household. could be confusing. And uh, this is, again, another beautiful cat who's um, got enough energy to raise, <laughs> raise his or her head up and, and look at the, at the photographer. Yeah. You, you woke me up for this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so you click on the picture, and that thumbnail expands. There's some more information about the cat. And uh, if any of these look great, grab the kids and saddle up the Palomino and go out to see Charlene and friends today at the Capital Humane Society. They're open. And here's Charlene with hours today and tomorrow. We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. Okay. And what goes into adopting a dog? Uh, We would have you come in, and we'll talk all about the animal's behavior and medical history, make Mm -hmm. sure it's a good match for you. Then we bring the dog in for you to meet, and you can decide if you're interested in adoption, and then we move forward. Um, The adoption fees are posted on our website. Uh, In general, it's about $150 for a dog under or four months and under and five months and older is 125 and then there might be some uh like deposits for a rabies deposit or a city license mm-hmm. and uh, if they live in an apartment uh, they want to make sure they've got permission uh from the landlord if they're renting before they adopt a dog or cat right absolutely you want to make sure that you're going to be able to give this pet a proper forever home so you want to make sure you have permission if needed if the dog is really energetic it's great to have a um, fence backyard of some sorts and with that in mind here's some great dogs for adoption i'm just curious as to who you're going to call first i'm going with dot (laughs) and dot is a cutie a little (laughs) terrier mix about eight pounds uh she can be a little bit shy but If you approach her slowly and with patience, she is a very nice dog. Um, She is looking for a family that understands that she doesn't like to be, you know, really grabbed for and that um, if you are really fast or make fast movements, she might get nervous. So she wants to meet all children to make sure it's a good match. Um, But again, with the proper touch, she is just the sweetest. Yeah, the way the uh, the picture is staged, it looks like uh, Dot's got a question mark over her right eye there. (laughs) <laughs> okay hey dot can you show us your ears Boing! this would be a dog you'd have to weight down in a strong nebraska wind so they wouldn't blow away they would lift off <laughs> dot has great ears all the better to hear you with so take a look at dot's picture and dot is joined by next up is duke 
And he is a uh, black lab, about two years old, very, very intelligent, knows sit and lay down and leave it, loves to play fetch, can just play fetch all day. So if you are looking for an intelligent, active companion, please ask about Duke. Okay, and that brings to mind that famous, famous musical byline, Duke, 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 Duke of Earl, Earl. Earl, Duke of Earl. Charlene, you're not joining in. Uh, you do it so well. Yeah, let's <laughs> give go me, with that. Give me all the glory. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> you're wrong. I'm serious. As they say down south, bless your heart. <laughs> okay, we got Dot and Duke. We don't know if he's with or of Earl, but he's a great-looking dog. And then there's... Next up is Oliver. About a year old, also a lab, but a yellow lab mix. Oh, sure. About 49 pounds, full oh. of energy as well, looking for a family that will provide plenty of playtime and exercise and training. And he does want to be your one and only furry friend, so he's looking for a home without other dogs or cats. But he knows the right family is out there, and maybe they're listening today. A lot of dog. What a, what a great-looking dog. Intelligence, look at that face there. He's got a singular focus on whatever that photographer's got. Boy, great-looking dog. So take a look at, at Oliver. He'd love to meet you. In fact, here's Charlene with hours open today and tomorrow. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? It was wonderful. We ate a lot of food, and uh, we enjoyed the fellowship and all the camaraderie. Like you, we have a lot to be thankful for, so we are very grateful we for should, the support yes. in the community and, and all the, the things that are happening that are so good for these animals. And we have to you know, look forward to next year for the Nebraska football team and their improvement. We'll yes, just, We'll absolutely. just leave that right there. There it is. <laughs> okay, Shirley, thanks for all you do. Look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you. Have a great day. Charlene and friends of the Capital Humane Society make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. Next up is our friend Brent Rains, and uh, Brent should be right there. Hi, Brent. Good to talk with you again. <laughs> yeah, Brent, where do we find you this morning? Well, I'm uh, I'm at my in my my home in Waynesboro, Tennessee. Okay, and uh, I kick back and enjoying the day. Sure. How is the weather in, in Tennessee today? Right now, I think it's about 60, and, uh, you know, it's a little cloudy, but uh, the temperature is pretty nice. I went out and took a, a walk with the dog a little while ago and uh, enjoyed it a lot. The birds were singing and, you know, couldn't ask for any more. And did you and your wife, your you and your family, have a good Thanksgiving? Oh, we had a great one. We sure did. And we all, be thankful for. we all woke up Friday morning and we just continued to eat, didn't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, eating's good. I even went to Red Lobster yesterday. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's always fun. So oh, uh, last, last weekend, um, you normally do the fourth Saturday, but you were on the road going to an event. Tell us about that event. Yes. Uh, I was, well, I was uh, actually have been 
actually I had to do an interview recently uh, with a gentleman up uh, near Nashville for uh, uh, YouTube, and uh, unfortunately we were in a park, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of winds during the interview, and then the helicopter flew by, and, and some of that audio is kind of bad, so he's he's still he's still working on that. But I had to, uh, and then the weekend, uh, of, of, you know, we normally do this show. I was also uh, down in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, doing a talk with a group called the Open Inquiry Group, and uh, usually there's about a dozen or two dozen people that gather. I think there was 16, 16 folks. Uh, last Saturday, and I, I, you know, was just uh, talking about uh, my book, John A. Keel, The Man, The Myth, and the Ongoing Mysteries, promoting it, so I did a little uh, little talk on that, and uh, it was really well received, and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really getting uh, <clears throat> fantastic responses uh, from, from the book, and, and I haven't had to really... Uh, go out and look for anybody to have me on their radio shows or podcast. I've been on Coast to Coast AM with Richard Surratt and uh, Midnight in the Desert with uh, David Schrader and uh, recently was part of a Ripley's Believe It or Not podcast on, oh, cool. on Mothman. So, I mean, it's uh, and it's interesting, a lot of the, the hosts like, well, like yourself, a long interest in paranormal and UFOs and um, have a lot of experiences of their own to share. You know, it's... Uh, there's a reason they're doing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, does your wife have an interest in this? Well, <clears throat> she has an interest. Um, it's not, uh, you know, it's not as... Um, she also has a lot of interest in Native American, which we, we share that. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's part Native American on both sides of her family, she's always been told. And she's interested uh, more in her arts and crafts and things. And... Uh, but uh, it was actually the UFO interest that brought us together back uh, in the mid-'70s. Uh, you know, we began corresponding. We were just correspondence pen pals for a while in the beginning. And uh, I, I had heard about it while I was in the Navy back around 1974. And uh, this uh, friend on the ship said, uh, know this girl in Tennessee who, uh, you know, she has an interest in UFOs, and she had uh, seen seen some. So we began corresponding, and uh, one of the most impressive uh, sightings she had was uh, she was visiting uh, next door, and this is in Waynesboro here, and uh, it was outside at night, and she said that she and this uh, girlfriend of hers were on the hood of a, uh, a car, and she just happened to look up, and there was this round object coming down straight down out of the sky at him and said it was uh bigger than a full moon and uh said she uh she pointed up at it to draw the attention of the several people who were there you know to it with her and said as soon as she pointed at it it started going straight up back up into the sky of course i asked her if she had any missing time and she said no there was nothing about the time that was unusual Mm -hmm. but uh I said, bigger than a full moon. That's that's pretty large. So anyway, she's uh, she's been with me <clears throat> on many of the investigations, and uh, also she uh, introduced me to a, a lady down in uh, Hamilton, Hamilton, Alabama, back in the mid '90s, who uh, led sweat lodges. So we've been in several dozen sweat lodges, and uh, this person 
also had an interest in UFOs and some unusual memories, and uh, which I intend to write about in my next reality checking column, uh, which will be out tomorrow. Uh, yeah, tomorrow's the deadline, the first of each month for each new issue. Yeah, in case people don't know, uh, Brent Rains, besides being the author of, of three books, including this uh, great book on John Keel, um, is also the editor and publisher of a free online uh, newsletter. And it's called um, Alternate Perceptions. And the uh, website is apmagazine.info. And uh, it's something that, that you folks that are listening live and also on the on the archive that you want to sign up for because it's always uh, always interesting there are a number of different vantage points that uh, Brent and his fellow colleagues and researchers bring there is a, a mix of phenomena being reported on lots of interviews with witnesses and uh, it's something that you can look forward to every month and uh, did I say that it's free of charge you can't beat that, can you? Uh-uh. So, no, no, can't beat that. <laughs> it's it's apmagazine.info. And how long have you been doing the magazine? Well, I started out in 1985, and uh, and at that time it was a print, uh, about four pages in the beginning, and then mm -hmm. it became like a newsletter, then a journal, and finally we were up to about, I think, 68 pages uh, with a color cover. Wow. Uh, we had magazine distributors, um, but about 2000, 2001, we, we kind of read the, the writing on the wall, and we saw everything was going Internet. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, we just transferred the, to the Internet. Of course, we come up more frequently, and as you say, it's free, so nobody should complain about that. <laughs> Tell us an interesting story, Brent, that's crossed your desk in the last 30 days. Well, um, I really don't, uh, I've been so busy with so many different things. I don't know that I've, uh, got anything that's, uh, you know, just crossed my desk. Uh, well, how about like a, a sneak uh, preview then at, at something out of the newsletter? Well, okay. We got, uh, now we do have some real, I think, exciting, uh, interviews, three of them, audio interviews, uh, one is uh, with a Soraya Ascast up in uh, Ithaca, New York. He does this uh, uh, two shows for WBBR 93.5 FM and uh, Where Did the Road Go? Um, and The Last Exit to the Lost. And this guy is really an interesting character. He's had the Kundalini Awakening when he was about 12, 13, which was a prelude to all sorts of... A, strange events in his life uh, since then, UFOs, paranormal, uh, you name it. So we had a very, very interesting interview there. And uh, and then British author Mark Anthony Wyatt, who's just had uh, a couple of books come out, Volume 1 and 2, The Spirit of Cornwall, uh, A Haunted Legacy. And uh, <clears throat> I tell you, Cornwall, England has lots of interesting stuff, uh, UFOs and uh, large owls, strange sea creatures, <laughs> um, and even mermaids. So uh, I'm looking forward to reading his book. He, just, he shares with us a lot of his own personal paranormal experiences in the interview. He's had a lifelong interest, uh, which began with his 
father when he was a boy telling him of a traumatic ghostly encounter that he had had. And then Joshua Cutchin, who's a 14, who uh, lives over near Atlanta, Georgia, who uh, recently wrote a book called Thieves in the Night, A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions, and uh, a number of other books, with one coming out uh, in December that he co-authored with a gentleman named Timothy Renner, uh, Where the Footprints End. And I, I met both of them and and uh, Mark Anthony Wyatt at the uh, Strange Realities Conference uh, back in October here in, up here in Nashville, Tennessee. It's, it's uh, good to see these other researchers come along, a new generation and uh, in, in some cases, and with all this creative and, you know, open-minded talent that's coming up. And that's so important because a lot of the researchers in uh, various fields of unexplained phenomena uh, are getting older, and it's good to see younger folks picking up that mantle and going forward. Um, at, yeah, the, at, at the, at the uh, a conference that you just mentioned, uh, did you have a chance uh, to talk with anybody about Bigfoot? I've been especially interested in conversations that, uh, that allow for Bigfoot to be both a physical and a psychical creature. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, the, um, the gentleman I just mentioned, Joshua Cutchin, uh, and this Timothy Renner, they, they did a talk together. Timothy Renner is a, um, um, from Pennsylvania, and uh, he knows Stan Gordon, and he's investigated all kinds of Bigfoot stories. And in the beginning... He, uh, in the beginning, he was, uh, he was thinking they were just, it was just a simple, straightforward, cryptozoological thing, you know, they were the missing link, uh, some sort of ape-like creature. Mm-hmm. And then he began to uh, hear all sorts of other stories, poltergeists, and uh, what he called the woman in white, and a lot of paranormal factors. So, um, yeah, they got a book coming out, uh, that's the one I mentioned earlier, uh, coming out in December, Where the Footprints End. And uh, they were talking, you know, about their the cases, and and mm-hmm. then I, when I when I heard that, I said to myself, I've got to get that book when it comes out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I've I've attended uh, two uh, conferences in Hastings, Nebraska, and uh, excuse me, I've attended one in Hastings, Nebraska. They've had two so far, and uh, the speakers that I've talked to there. Uh, without exception, uh, think of Bigfoot as being a physical creature, um, a, a hominoid, an upright uh, being that is elusive because they are very intelligent, that, that are able to avoid and or hide from humans, uh, except when they uh, want to be seen. And when I asked these researchers, I talked to a handful of them, to a man and to a woman, they uh, they said that they were really focused on the physicality of the creature. And yet, Brent, in my studies, and I'm certainly not a, a pro like these guys and gals are, but it appears like there is another element in there where, as the the title of that book suggests, you've got Bigfoot tracks that lead into a place, and uh, they simply stop. And there's absolutely no evidence of where that creature that made that track 
the set of tracks has gone. And there's not just one report, there are many reports like that. Um, I've got one of my files of a, a nurse driving home on North 27th, just north of Superior, about 10 o'clock one night, and she's driving south, approaching Superior, and she sees this shaggy humanoid, a quote-unquote Bigfoot-like creature, run right across the the street in front of her, and he runs down a feeder route into a subdivision at 45 miles an hour. She's there within just seconds, and she literally stops her car and looks down that feeder route street, and there's nothing. Yeah, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of anomalies. In fact, uh, one of these authors, I think it was Timothy Renner, uh, uh, no, no, I think it was uh, Joshua Cutchin, anyway, one of them, uh, came up with the term wilderness poltergeist. Because hmm. he said a lot of times the, you know, people go out looking for Bigfoot and these rocks are thrown at them. They come very close. They're often warm to the touch. And um, they presume that Bigfoot is warning them away, although many times they don't see the Bigfoot as just the rocks and other strange things. And he says, you know, it's it runs a parallel with, uh, in his mind, poltergeist manifestations, and and they find a lot of the the Bigfoot witnesses also have poltergeist experiences or like experiences, as do you know UFO close encounter and contact experiences. Yes, yeah, it's a lot more than just bright lights in the sky, isn't it? Yeah, it's again. It's it's the. Um, I mean, we've done the same thing for years and years. Many people in, in mainstream ufology uh, simply ignore those other reports. They ignore the the cryptid stories, it's unrelated to their UFO investigation, uh, as well as poltergeist manifestations. So, if we could just get all these different branches of research, the researchers coming together. And it's good to see that there are, uh, you know, some fairly newcomers to the field who are exploring those angles and who are reading K. Keel and, and Valley. And, and uh, until my my book come out, I don't think I realized and appreciated just how many people out there are really interested in in, uh, in those two authors. That uh, book again is called John A. Keel: The Man, The Myths and the ongoing mysteries. Find out more at Brent's website, apmagazine.info. And Brent, thank you very much for taking time on this Thanksgiving weekend to be with us. And I look forward to hearing from you uh, next month as well as reading your your next newsletter. All right, well, thank you, Scott. I sure appreciate it. You take care. Brent Rains from Tennessee. He joins us typically every fourth Saturday, but we had a schedule jump, and so he was gracious enough to appear today. So we appreciate that. Uh, let's take a bottom-of-the-hour break, and uh, Jim Shorty's here. We're going to get our coffee cups refilled, mm-hmm. and then we'll have a conversation with uh, our guest, Taden Bundy, and we'll be talking about Beyond Lincoln, a history of hauntings. Stay tuned for more right after this. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's sure great to have you with us, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. I had the pleasure this week of reading a, uh, a recent book by a Lincoln author, and it's Beyond Lincoln, A History of Nebraska Hauntings. 
The author Taden Bundy was born and raised in Lincoln. He graduated from the University of Nebraska in 2018 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in English and History. Over the summer of 2017, he was an intern for Prairie Schooner. His work has been published in Illuminations, Loris Magazine, Distortions, and The Argonaut. Uh, Beyond Lincoln, A History of Nebraska Hauntings is his first book. And this book draws on historical records and ge- uh, geographical documentation. Uh, so, Taden, welcome to the, to the broadcast. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. Hey, tell us about uh, maybe the genesis or seed for this. How did this whole project start? Um, I have loved ghost stories my entire life. I have been researching them, looking into them, listening to them, sharing them um, since I was very young. And so I actually had the opportunity in college to take on an independent study course. And I was just going over ideas of what I could do and how I could mix together my love for history with ghosts somehow. So I came up with this idea to do a few chapters for a book for an independent study course to also try to see if I could publish something within that time period. And so I started to research more thoroughly into the ghost stories that I'd already collected over the years and started to just really delve deeper into the history behind them and, and where they originated from. So the idea was just to, to dig deeper and to make sure that I was trying to find something that was origin-based uh, related to ghost stories. And that's where the book actually came from. But the book was, you know, love built over many, many years. We're going to have you switch microphones here because we're getting a little bit of of noise through that. So push that one out of the way here. And our guest in studio is Taden Bundy, and we want to get a great signal for all you folks that are listening out there. Okay, so that's the yellow mic. Let's try that. That That one sound a little better? Yeah, that's a lot better. All right. Okay. Yeah, let's write. Is that going to be comfortable for you? Yeah, I think it'll be okay. Okay. And so you were you were a product of Lincoln, Nebraska. You've been hearing ghost stories for a long time. Um, my first introduction was in the in Boy Scouts because we'd go out on campouts. And what do Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts do after dinner? They sit around the campfire and tell stories. Right. And you may have stories that go hither and yon, but typically a lot of those seem to come back around ghost stories. Right. There's a certain affection uh, and an interest that, that we all have in that. Um, things that go bump in the night and sometimes the day. Um, and so um, you, you started pulling together this material, and what kind of a process was that for you? Uh, it was, uh, what I tried to do was I, I took the ghost stories first, because that was the most important feature of, of the book and, and what I was trying to accomplish. So I took each ghost story. I had dozens of them that I had compiled that I sort of weeded through to, to try to find stories that I, that I personally found compelling, but ones that I had grown up with and heard. And I originally had decided that I wanted to do only Lincoln I would, because that's what I know the best. But as I started to read ghost stories and listen to people's stories and, and sort of uh, just compile them together for the book, I realized that there were a lot of really great ones from outside of Lincoln that I really wanted to touch on. So I narrowed them down to 10 that I found had really great ghost stories 
And then uh, I started, well, I before the 10, before I got to the 10, I, I actually uh, did research on several other ones that I had considered. And what I what would stop me for those stories would be that that I couldn't find enough historical information or documentation to to sort of link it to that ghost story and where where I could personally try to say to someone, hey, this is where I think this ghost story originated from. Because that was my whole mission. I'm I'm gonna try to tell you where I think this started as mm -hmm. much as possible. Mm -hmm. So if I hit like sort of a, a a point where I couldn't find enough, then I I would let it go and sort of move on to something else. Uh, for instance, Lake Street Lake. I had a, a I, I love that ghost story. I love the story of of that area. And I just couldn't find enough information to be able to create a chapter out of and to to feel confident enough saying like, here, this is where I think this, this is where it came from. Mm -hmm. So the stories that I chose were, um, they're all public places. They're places that people can go. And uh, they, they had to have enough information for me to be able to, to, feel, to feel good about being like, hey, this is, this is what this, is, this ghost story is about. And this is where I think it came from and why. Mm -hmm. Our guest today is Taden Bundy. And the book is Beyond Lincoln, A History of Nebraska Hauntings. Uh, his websites that we'll give out periodically during the show, they're pretty easy to find. His first name, Taden, is T-A-Y-D-E-N, last name Bundy, B-U-N-D-Y, so TadenBundy.com. You can also go to HauntedNE.com, and you'll find Taden Bundy also on, on Facebook. So you see this yellow book here that right. weighs down many pounds. This is sort of my compilation that eventually I'm going to weed through that and also do a writing project. So I'm always interested to talk to you guys that have already got something out to see how you... Do you, do you write best when, when it strikes you or do you have a regime where you get up and have coffee and then you go to the office-word processor and right. What works for you? Uh, what works for me is actually setting a schedule. If I have a schedule, I go to write at this time period for this amount of time or for mm -hmm. this length of time or, or this length of words, then that actually works better for me. Uh, with this book, and I write a lot of fiction as well, but with this book, and that, that works with fiction, but I, this one I was more compulsive. It was weird. It was like I, I would find something and I would want to write about it then, so then maybe something would, would, would trigger a... a, a a paragraph or, or something like that. So then I would write for that. But, but I would still over, once I researched everything and got everything that I believed that I wanted to put into the book, then I would sit down and write every day around the same time because that would just sort of flow. It flows for me that way. And, and I know that there, yeah, there are some people that, that can just write any time and they can sit down and not be distracted and have to turn everything off and, and have like a specific time period and a, and a goal in mind mm -hmm. usually. So yeah, there's as a as a musician, there's a many stories about Lennon and McCartney from the Beatles. Um, they're in a recording studio, right? And they're they're looking towards okay, we've got to do something. Um, let's go take a lunch break, and so they go to lunch, and um, they're riding back to the studio in a cab, and uh, all of a sudden, one of them grabs a napkin out of their pocket, and writes down some lyrics that come. The other guy looks at it, points out a few things. They add some. They get in the studio. George Harrison is over in the corner kind of playing some stuff, and they walk over and say, what are you playing? 
play that again. And so he plays the riff or melody line, and within an hour, they have a hit record that's number one all over the world. Right. And that is such an elusive thing that they were able to grab. Um, people like you, I, I have admiration for Taden. When I've written songs before, I can come up with a melody line on guitar, just like falling off a log. I mean, I can reel those off one after the other and without breaking any sweat. But coming up with the right lyrics, the right words, it's like the process of giving birth. I've got to spend sometimes months with a song to get anything out, you know? Yeah. And I'll sit there with pen in hand and my guitar on my knee and go, well, okay. <laughs> so this is, this is great. How did you find a publisher then? What was that like? I did it all myself, actually. Okay. So I decided because it was locally based that I just wanted to take it on and see how it went. And uh, it's a, it was a learning process. I took a class in college and I utilized the, the things that I had learned from that particular class as a, as a way to, to move forward. And I had a lot of help along the way. A lot of different people helped me with formatting and uh, my best friend did the cover and uh, my brother actually helped me with putting it all together. And so I had a lot of help along the way with- You with, had volunteer proofreaders right. that went through and said, the and these right. and- <laughs> I did actually have one person actually look through it and edit it for me that does that. <laughs> so, so I mean, important. yeah. And I, um, yeah. So, I mean, it was just the, the process of, it was, it was something that I wanted to see if I could do on my own. So I just did it on my own and I, it was, it's been a rewarding process. It's been a, a huge learning experience for me. And, uh, and I've, I've loved, you know, just having the opportunity to be able to do it and, and to get it out there and, and meet people and, and share it with other people. And if people want a copy of your book, how can they get one? Uh, they can get it at my, on my website okay. at com on the store page, and I deliver them directly. So I like to sign them a lot of times too, if you really want me to. Cool. Um, and you can also get them at several bookstores and a couple of stores here in Lincoln, mm -hmm. uh, Francie and Finch and uh, Front Nebraska Gift Shop. Uh, uh, there's uh, Badger Books, over uh, in Union area, uh, I believe I may have some copies at Indigo Bridge. So it's just a few other. You can check out my website as well. There's a list of places that mm -hmm. I have Good. them. So yeah. Good. And I imagine if we went out to your car right now and opened the trunk, there's probably a <laughs> box of books there. I, I do always have a box of books with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have books will travel. That's sort of like the old days where you would publish something, then get out in the car and and you'd say, okay, today I'm going to drive to, you know, and you sort of do those rounds. So I've talked with a lot of authors over the years that they got their start by actually doing that on weekends, driving around and, and introducing people to the books, making sure that libraries had a, a copy. And so uh, you mentioned Lake Street Lake. Let's jump in there. Um, yeah, because I live very close to that. <laughs> let's, let's talk about Lake Street Lake. What is it about that area or the series of stories that has fascinated you? I think growing up, just being able to actually physically go there, and that's an open area. Mm -hmm. So when I was younger and I heard the story of the boy who was ice skating out there and bullies came and and actually killed him on the ice, and that's where his his ghost is known to to roam. Uh, and 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 I think that 
the idea that there was also this figure seen as like a blue light floating around that area that people have seen. Uh, that also just intrigued me. And I mean, I just think that uh, maybe as a as a young as a as a youngster, it was uh, just being connected to a, a kid who could have potentially been hurt somewhere too. Uh, but I, yeah, I just was always fascinated by that ghost story. And when I started researching it, I was one of the very first ones I, I started researching. And I, I couldn't find a whole lot in relation to just the area in general, or, or I couldn't find anything related to the boy. And I was trying to find this boy because that's the most important element of the story. <laughs> so when I'm looking at these ghost stories, I'm looking at possible time periods, which are very rare in ghost stories. Every now and then you get maybe, you know, 1900s-ish, or, you know, sometimes you get a, a date, but it's very rare. So I'm looking more so at the area than I'm looking at the pond that did exist there, that people did ice skate on at some point. So I I'm did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, I mean, it did exist. So then I'm looking at that and I'm trying to find, well, where did, where does this boy come in then? You know, there's this, I, I find this information that there's this pond that used to be here that was, you know, would ice over and people would skate and have a great time. And all I'm finding is nice things. And, you know, with, unfortunately with ghosts comes death generally. So, you know, you're looking for something that's happened there. That's, you know, that's related to death in some way. And so I have found, I did find some information related to, I believe it was in the eighties, a murder that happened around that area, uh, just right in the kind of circles around. And it's a big, you know, dipped in area right in the middle of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I did find something related to that. So that could be maybe related to, you know, he handed me a picture here with a, with a figure in it at the bottom, which that could be related to that or the blue, even the blue light, you know, that could be related to that individual. But since I couldn't find anything related to the boy, uh, then I, I had to sort of set it aside, which mm-hmm. was a big bummer because I really right. wanted to talk about this story and, and, and talk about the origins and share possibly even the past of this you know, young man who lost his life, mm-hmm. which is also important to me because it's important to our communities to learn about these things mm-hmm. and to share, you know, things that have happened that maybe aren't so nice, but they're a part of our history and they're important to, to carry on someone's name somehow. That area used to be a, an old dairy farm and it said that there's a tree there that's one of the oldest trees in the area that's still standing. Um, I grew up on the south side of the country club and we were aware of Lake Street Lake. And so during the summer, <clears throat> I remember actually on my Schwinn bicycle holding a fishing rod to my handlebars. And somehow I had a can of worms with me, but we rode over there and, and caught bullhead. Story that I heard also that there was something that happened there where it called into question either safety and or liability in the city. And so they quit uh, filling it and actually drained it. And now... I don't know what uh, what we can say except that it's lined with stones and and uh, it's it's there. So yeah, there's a, there's a tree in the middle. So yeah, I is. mean, it, there's a big tree there. The uh, the picture is from Jeff Larchick. He's a storm spotter and took that picture uh, among others of an advancing storm mm-hmm. coming into Lincoln. And uh, I'm showing uh, uh, Tayden and, and Jim this picture that there is a kind of a weird anomaly yeah. that um, they uh, lower left-hand corner that we sort of call the blob, and we don't know what that is. And I had, uh, I had been sent copies of 
several pictures from this sequence by Dale Bacon at one point in time, and I still have them somewhere on one of my hard drives. I need to do some data recovery and retrieve them. But the thing that struck me was this blob across two or three different frames stayed in the same position in the frame, even though the frame shifted. That, to me, suggests something going on with the camera itself. What what that is, I can't say for sure. Allegedly, Jeff had people that looked at it that were photographic experts, and they, they couldn't determine if it was a emulsion flaw or a, a, mm -hmm. uh, a bug on the lens. So... And then we get into the whole idea of can entities use our technology to create images that that we then pull out either through audio recordings uh, and or photographs. Well, and, and that's where I have a high degree of, of skepticism because I know I'm a technolo technological person. I know how this stuff works. Okay, given the proper tools and equipment, I could build a digital camera on my workbench or I could build a recorder on my workbench and explain to you how it works. And I can say, well... I can impress my voice into the electronics of that recorder, and I know how that's happening. So my question is, okay, how does a spirit know how to do this? Right. Do we all become electrical engineers when we die? I mean, and I, I haven't... I, you get a lot of woo from people when you talk about this subject, and nobody can give me any any solid scientific theories about how this might happen. We're going to take our top-of-the-hour break. Our special guest in studio is Taden Bundy. And uh, we've got more stories coming up. Stay tuned for Beyond Lincoln. With Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, and it's sure great to have you with us. Uh, we've got some stories in store for you here. We've got a special guest today, Taden Bundy, who's taken time from his Thanksgiving weekend and book slinging to be with us here in the studio. So, Taden, again, it's great to have you here. Well, thank you so much. I've got a, a interest in one of the stories in your book, um, multiple stories actually, but one in particular about Wilderness Park. And there's a lot of information in that story that historically that I never knew. Right. I never knew that, you know, for example, I, yes, I'm that old. <laughs> I remember Capitol Beach as an amusement park. I go back that far, but there was an amusement park in Wilderness Park. Right, on a much smaller scale. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Capitol Beach was much, much larger. They had their own roller coaster. They had a lot going on out there. Um, Epworth Park was more so, um, it was a place for people to gather to camp and to boat. There was a donut-shaped lake that they built out there that they could rent canoes and, and sort of, you know, just float around and yeah. um, I believe they probably could swim in there as well 
And uh, they had, I think, a merry-go-round, things like that. Nothing super large scale like Capitol Beach did, but mm-hmm. but it did. They they had thousands and thousands of people that would come out there every single day. They had an amphitheater, and they, they had did a hall, and yeah, and there they were stores, and mm-hmm. they had speakers that would come out. Uh, pretty big names of the time period that would come and speak to them. They would have entertainment type uh, events where you know, sort of, uh, they would put on. Enter, entertainment like plays and things like that for for large thousands like a couple thousand people I think could fit in the amphitheater. What's so, the location we're talking about geographically? Um, if you're going into Wilderness Park and you are on the it would be the northernmost section before you get into the Camp Wilderness area. There's a it's like first in Calvert, and there's actually if you go through there, there's a archway, a replica archway from the original Epworth Park entrance. Uh, from the main entrance, and it, I think it was rebuilt in the 80s or something like that. So you're talking years after Epworth Park had been had been left, you know, mm-hmm. from the flooding in the 30s. Was the uh, the buildings were they scavenged for material to build other stuff? And uh, I believe a lot of the stuff was washed out from the floods. Uh, but, Salt Creek is right there, right? And uh, but the, but there were several. I think there were 12 to 15 families that lived in the park all year long and they actually moved i believe all of their homes to other places and there's some of them and there's some of them out in the yankee hill area there's some i think maybe in crete there's one uh some of them are smaller almost shed like buildings or people mm-hmm. that are using as outbuildings but they were homes that were built in wilderness park at the time mm-hmm. so yeah i mean the, so there and there are some remnants in the park not so much now uh over the years things just you know, filling in and getting washed over and then people picking through things. Uh, there's not much left, but you will see, especially towards the entrance area, you will see, uh, I believe that there's like uh, concrete blocks that are still in the ground that mm-hmm. were, I was told were part of the post office at one point. So they actually had their own post office there. So people were getting their mail every day <laughs> in, in Wilderness Park. <laughs> and this, this park then runs... Um quite a ways uh, many miles right it goes i think all the way until saltillo road so you're going yeah. very far south and it's 1400 acres i believe somewhere around there my my uh, parents owned a garden plot at south 27th and saltillo that was right on salt creek and it was always a crapshoot it was always dicey whether or not the garden would survive <laughs> because of the flooding right and they didn't have a controlled watershed back then, so sometimes we'd have a just a bumper garden. I've got memories of sitting on the back bumper of a car, mom just picking lettuce that she washed off with some water from a jug. She sprinkled a little bit of sugar on it and gave it to me, and I ate it, and I thought, this is damn good. This is pretty good. You know, right from, and I remember uh, uh, helping my dad uh, get some ears of corn, and we actually had a, a Coleman camp stove that we heated water right there. And we ate corn that we'd literally picked minutes beforehand right there. Uh, then other years when Salt Creek would flood and Dad would say, well, we're done going out there this year. So, And I don't know why people have an attraction to put Epworth Park next to a place that has got a history of flooding. Right. I. Well, I mean, maybe back then there wasn't much for documentation related to how much it flooded in that area because they did thrive for 
30 years almost before right. before they were actually pushed out and and they were deemed um it's you know it was deemed an area that was not safe mm-hmm. to continue to keep trying to build up and you know and, and maybe things sort of shifted and in, in weather changes all the time too and maybe they had a few dry years and it was great and then I, I would assume maybe early on they just didn't have enough related to how often that area flooded because there wasn't very many people out there at the time before they decided to buy that land and, and turn it into the park. Jim, can you imagine, if you know where First and Calvert is, mm-hmm. right? That's pretty easy to find. Yeah. Think in your mind's eye now where Robber's Cave is. Right. It's not too far. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, grabbing the family and saying... Um, Let's go out to Epworth, and it's a hot day. Hey, let's go cool off, and we'll go over to Robber's Cave here. So I imagine you probably had people going back and forth between the cave and and Epworth there. So tell us more now. Let's get into some of the ghosty stuff about Wilderness Park. Sure. Uh, uh, Wilderness Park has a few different stories. One is related to a train wreck that happened there in the late 1800s. A late, a train wreck? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it happened, it was a rock, it's called the Rock Island train wreck. Uh, the train was coming from Fairbury, uh, and it was coming into Lincoln, and it wrecked, and, um... What was your approximate date? Oh, I think it was August 8th. Or just, how about the year? Uh, 1894, I believe. 1894. We had a train come on up from Fairbury. Yes. And was there some skullduggery involved? Um, when they started to investigate the crash, they found that the train, the tracks were actually had been altered. They found a crowbar nearby that someone had thrown not very far, obviously, because it was found. Uh, but they, they realized that someone had altered the tracks in a way that indicated that someone was trying to cause the wreck, and they believed it was most likely robbery related there were lots of goods on the train at the time there was 30 passengers 33 passengers and crew and 11 people actually ended up dying was it daytime nighttime uh, i was in it was in the evening so it was uh they left i think fairbury around t- seven o'clock and they were supposed to arrive in lincoln around nine o'clock and they that was when the crash occurred and so we're coming up and the train goes up over a trestle Yes. Tell us what happened. Uh, it was coming up over towards a trestle, and it actually hit the area where it had been altered with the tracks, and I think it went about 200 feet and just sort of skid across the tracks and came over the side of the trestle bridge about 40 feet below and landed down below. Oh, geez. And this ignited a fire, and it lit uh, the, you know, the wooden... The, the beams that went across the tracks underneath on fire, and the train started on fire, and people were trapped inside. And uh, actually, the brakeman, his name was Harry Foote, and he had broken his leg, and he went in several times and saved people out of the burning train wreck. So he was incredibly brave to be going back in with his injury and pulling pe- as many people out as he could. And what, what approximate area was this trestle in? Uh, it's actually, there's still a uh, bridge there today. Uh, it's, it's, it's easily accessible site. It is. Yeah. It's on the Jamaica Trail North. Mm-hmm. I believe it's right after, if you park in the um, area on Old Cheney, there's a parking lot on Old Cheney there. And if you, if you start to walk south on the Jamaica Trail, you'll find it. There's a trail marker there. And uh, it's actually part of the trail system. There's a bridge across where the old trestle was now. 
And it's a really cool site because you can actually walk on the trail the whole length of the train track back down to almost to the highway. And uh, it's it's really kind of trippy because you can see the remains of the, the railroad ties and the embankment there. And if you climb on up, up on it and look down on the other side, you'll see you're at on the top of a really, really tall drop-off. And it's just, you wonder just, wow, how did they build this? This is just so cool. And it's, it's a neat place to go on a nice afternoon and just go hiking. Was it more efficient to put a train track that went up over that hill on a trestle as opposed to going around it? I suppose so. That's the bend. <laughs> You'd have to ask the, the people that, that built it at the time. But, uh, yeah, I think it was more or less a direct route into town. It wasn't just like, you know, where do we put this track? There's a hill. Let's go ahead and run it over the top of that and build a trestle. Right. Do you want to just go around the hill? Nah, that wouldn't be as enough fun. Let's just go to the... So, 1894. Um, and now, in all seriousness, people were uh, killed... People yes. were injured, mm-hmm. uh, and as far as we know, the culprit that may have caused this misadventure by altering the tracks, have they ever been brought to justice? They did arrest a man named George Washington Davis, and they found him a few miles outside of town uh, at a farmhouse when they were looking for him. The only reason why they had him as a suspect was because he was around the area, supposedly, when it happened, uh, and he was according to witnesses seen running away or seemingly running away and was called back and they thought he was actually there to help. Um, and mm. once he came back and then he helped for a little while and then when they found that the train tracks were altered, they actually started looking for him in particular. And uh, then they, that's why they believed that he was possibly involved. And he was, he went to trial. He had two trials. The first one they couldn't come to a unanimous vote. And then the second trial, they convicted him of second-degree murder. And I believe he got 20 years to life. But in a weird turn of events, 10 years later, he was, re- he was released on basis on lack of evidence that he was actually involved. Mm. So technically, it's still considered an unsolved murder mm-hmm. from that time period because even though they thought they had the guy, they didn't. So, uh, yeah, so whoever actually did it, whether Davis did or not, he was you know, considered innocent. So um, I would assume that at the time they couldn't come up with the, an, enough evidence, obviously, to, to convict him. So he most likely was not involved. And, uh, yeah, so no one really knows who did it. So if, if, if Jim or I were out walking the trail, um, what is an example of some of the reports that you've heard from people that have experienced some odd otherworldly things there? Sure. Uh, many people will say that they experience uh, a, an odd feeling when they're walking towards the bridge or underneath the bridge. They feel uneasy or colder. They, people like to say that it's colder in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people will say that they hear screams or um, sounds of the train, like a, something like a train wreck, something like metal on metal sounds or screeching, things like that. Uh, and the most common thing that, uh, well, one of the other things is a, this was the most interesting. Uh, some uh, people have said that they see a, what seems like a light sort of bouncing along as if it's like a lantern running or swinging. 
And, um, and most people will say that they actually feel like someone is coming up behind them, walking behind them, and they can sense someone approaching. And when they turn around, there's no one there. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there hours that the trail is open and closed? I believe that they're only open daylight hours. So you're, okay. you're talking from dusk to dawn. And then uh, I think it changes, obviously, around here with, with when, when that happens at night. They don't want anybody in, in the park in, in the nighttime. And we want to make sure that people observe the, the laws and regulations. Of course. Right. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've heard stories before where there's a, um, a residence in a subdivision and people would say, you know, why don't you tell us the exact address? Well, it's because... You don't want bozos like me coming up to the front door Saturday night at 10 o'clock saying, hey, do you mind if me and my 10 friends go down in your basement and look for the ghost? So that's why sometimes a lot of these private places are kept private. And and you don't want to do breaking and entering. You don't want to do trespass, you know. And I think you've got a proviso about that in your book, too. Of course, yes. And that's incredibly important. And Wilderness Park has incredibly rich history and it's and it's a place where people enjoy their days so taking care of it is really important and when when we were down there it was on a nice sunny afternoon a bit cool but there was plenty of activity uh joggers hikers and whatnot and uh, just a good day to go walking in the park you know the, the south entrance is is it off of uh 27th uh this or, no, excuse me 14th 14th street yeah if you're if you're you could come off of uh, a lot of yeah, you can take 14th and, and Sawtillo. First Street down. First Street will actually lead you down a lot of the park. And then there's entrances on Pioneers and there's entrances on uh, Old, Old Cheney mm-hmm. and then on Calvert as well. And I think on Sawtillo as well. Yeah, I've, uh, you know, I, would, I don't want to typecast anything, but I've been out to that south entrance several times and uh, it felt weird. Yeah. Felt weird. I'm just going to leave it at that. We've got Taden Bundy here in the studio, and he's the author of Beyond Lincoln, A History of Nebraska Hauntings. And you can find more information at Taden Bundy. That's T-A-Y-D-E-N Bundy.com or Haunted N-E. Uh, Haunted N-E.com. Two websites. You'll also find Taden uh, on uh, Facebook. Uh, we've got a caller here. Would you like to go on the air with a comment or question? Yeah, sure. Hi. Uh, th- hi. This is Joseph Moore, a paranormal investigator. Um, uh, shout out to uh, Jason Faust with uh, Heartland Paranormal. Tayden, can you hear our caller okay? Uh, yeah, I can. Okay. Hi, hi, Tayden. This is Joseph Moore. You and I met online. Uh, uh, yeah, I remember your comments. I, I remember talking yeah, to you briefly. You, great, man. You're doing, you got a lot of great information because uh, I did a little, just a little bit of my own investigation at Wilderness part i couldn't find a lot i got some of the information you got a lot more than i did just so yeah really seriously props to you guys hey real quick uh can you t- what can you tell us about the the so-called witch uh the wilderness which i call it wilderness which the urban legends of that and i'll listen to you off air what can you can you please fill us in thanks a lot now listen to you off air sure, thank you so much yeah that's an interesting part of this too thank you caller for mentioning that was there a witch that lived there in Wilderness Park? A uh, witch of Wilderness Park story is one of my favorite stories. Because, this one is new to me, too. Right. It's a, it's a witch that, uh, the, according to the, the legends of the story, uh, that lived in the park around the time, uh, the, or, uh, 
early 1900s is what I've heard. And she lived alone. And one afternoon, a well, there was a lot of children coming up missing around that uh, area in Wilderness Park. And um, one afternoon, a, a, a brother and sister were around that area. And the sister saw her her brother being pulled into the woods by this woman. Oh, jeez. Well, she runs back home or to her parents, uh, goes back into town and, and tells them, oh, there's, there's, you know, he was taken by this woman in the woods. Well, they go out, the police go out to investigate and they uncover all these bodies in the area, but they cannot convict the woman for some reason. They can't pin the, the children's murders on the woman. So, of course, the town takes their, uh, takes justice into their own hands and they hang her in the woods uh, with a chain to a tree. And the legend is, is that if you find the chain uh, and, you, and you, you will find where her body is buried uh, at the, the bottom of this tree uh, in the ground. And uh, if you find her, though, then you will be cursed. So um, the, the, I could not find anything related to children being murdered around that time period. And as we talked about before, Epworth Park was in full swing. There were thousands of people out there. Lots of people lived in the area. Uh, and what I think that I uncovered specifically about this, and we were talking about this earlier too with Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts uh, telling ghost stories as children around the mm -hmm. campfire. Uh, when Ep when Epworth Park was deemed un uh, not safe any longer and was shut down uh they did leave some of the buildings uh whatever was left and there was a boy scout cabin that was in the middle of the donut shaped lake and that was left out there even after wilderness park was purchased by the city and uh turned into wilderness park and the cabin remained there for quite some time well it caused a lot of problems with kids going out there and starting fires in that area, trying to hang out there at night. And so they ended up bulldozing it down and getting rid of it. But they left the foundation and the chimney in of that, of that cabin. So you start to think that most people would tell me, have you seen the witch's cabin? You know, have you seen it before? And when they take you out there, they're trying to show you a foundation somewhere that they've seen years ago. And I think that it's the cabin in the center of the donut-shaped lake that mm. was left behind and then maybe those stories about this which started sort of coming out of children talking and that's one element of ghost stories that happens sometimes mm -hmm. maybe there's really no validity to it in 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 documentation related to history maybe it's just that there maybe was a woman that lived out there that was maybe a little bit um different or you know maybe didn't like kids so much and wanted them to be off of her lawn and so then she became the witch somehow and so the, that's how these stories sort of originate sometimes. Maybe they don't really have a truth behind them. They just have a past that's related to that area that was sort of created over time to become the witch. I mean, I really wanted, I didn't want that story to be true related to children, of course, but um, I really wanted to find someone maybe that I could have linked to that, but uh, I never could find anything related to the witch. But I did include it in the, in the book because I just liked the story. Okay, well, speaking of speaking of women that are a little bit different, <laughs> what about Bloody Mary? Right, Bloody Mary. Um, I included Bloody Mary in the book because I like all the stories. I love that story mm -hmm. as well. And 
not so be, so much because of the horrible things that happened in relation to that, but more so because I wanted to tell the true story behind her mm-hmm. and how she was so misrepresented yes. in her life. And so what I did was I told the ghost stories. I told the legends mm-hmm. because they're important. And, and one of the main reasons why was because my 15-year-old cousin had heard the same stories that I had heard growing up. Yeah. And I loved that, that those, that, those, that those legends are enduring through time and people are still telling them. And I always was intrigued by the story of Bloody Mary when I was a kid. And her house was obviously gone by the time I was yeah. running, running around trying to find ghosts. Uh, but her her legend sort of seems to linger on, and mm-hmm. the idea of um, just her being there and being this eccentric woman who lived without electricity and she was living alone and stayed in her own home and wanted to do that was very strong-willed. I've read some of her articles in the paper, her opinion mm-hmm. articles in the paper. Mm-hmm. She was a very strong-willed woman. And uh, she endured a lot in her lifetime, and the possibility of her uh, her ghost sort of maybe lingering in that area, I mean, could potentially make sense. That was a place she loved. She loved that yeah. home. She stayed there until she could no longer take care of herself. So that was a place she grew up her whole life. And, you know, I would have liked to assume that maybe her ghost there would be a positive and not necessarily something negative and um, that maybe she lingers there because she loved it so much. Well, I think it's important to understand that there's a real person behind these legends. And I read a book several years ago, I think it was titled Bloody Mary Gentlewoman. Right. And it did the same thing and explored the person behind the legend. And we we really need to understand that this was a, a real human being that, uh, she was doing the best she could, and uh, she was actually a nice person. Mm-hmm. I've I've heard that from everyone that I've that has said that they knew her in life has said mm-hmm. that she was a very kind woman. And if you drive by that spot, uh, knowing a little bit of the history of the property, you can see where the lake used to be, and you can imagine the house up on the hill there. And it's real. Every every time I drive by there, it's on on Superior Street. Every time I d- drive through there, I I think of Mary Partington. So I'm old enough, Taden, that my generation, um, there were people that would go out there for quote unquote fun, a lark, but it was to basically bother Mary Partington, mm-hmm. and we never knew her name, her given name. She was always referred to as Bloody Mary. And kids would talk about going out there and, and doing donuts in her driveway and, and yelling and, and uh, sometimes seeing if they could go up to the front door and knock on the front door and then run. Um, that all sounds harmless with a solitary event. But then, folks, imagine that this happens night after night. Right. Imagine people actually breaking and entering into your home to try to obtain relics to prove that they were there. Imagine people shooting into the house. Mm -hmm. There's a story of of Mary giving a a piano lesson to a uh, child. And the child says, "Um, Mary, what is this hole? And she says, matter of fact, well, that's from a rifle that was shot through the front of my... You know, if it was my yeah, child, right. I fact, would probably say, well, that's the end of piano lessons um, there. With, 
fact, she had to sleep upstairs because it was literally too dangerous to sleep downstairs on the lower level. She, she could have gotten shot. How did she get her name Bloody Mary? She actually was in the house one evening and a man was coming through her window and she came downstairs with a shotgun and she shot him as he was trying to enter her home. And so that's sort of where the Bloody Mary name, the mm -hmm. moniker came from just because she was defending herself. She mm -hmm. was alone in her home, and there was a man coming through her window, and she shot him, and he died. And, um, yeah, so people started just calling her Bloody Mary in relation to that because it was in the papers. It was all over. She shot someone even though it was in self-defense, and mm -hmm. um, she was – I mean, people were already sort of talking about her on a very, you know, small level, I think, then because they were also going out to that area to try to find the pig man – who lived out there, who was a man that, that rented, uh, a family that rented their part of the Partington's land and actually had garbage out there and they would feed their pigs the garbage. And uh, so he got this nickname. So kids are trying to go out there to harass him and then they're driving past this large house that has no lights on and they think that it's probably abandoned and that's probably where it all started. Mm. But as you mentioned, you know, a lot of the people that I've spoken to that actually went out there and did those things, they feel awful about it now. Mm. And I, and I think that that's important to tell the, her story. So yes. then they kind of get to know who she was and what she did for our communities and, you know, for, for Lincoln. And she was a part of Havelock and but she was um, a teacher, wasn't she? Right. She was yeah. for many years and she, you know, and, and, and her students, liked her for, mm -hmm. you know, from what I can tell. And, you know, and she, she did a lot for the community. She helped out a lot. She volunteered a lot and she was, uh, and it, I just think, think her story is important for people to know. And, you yes. know, especially pe people who feel really bad about what they did and, uh, you know, cause teenage kids, mm -hmm. you know, they, they do dumb things that they regret later. Yeah. So, you know, and that's one of them that a lot of people growing up around that time period regret. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a bottom of the air break. We've got our special guest, Taden Bundy, and we'll get a, a chance to fill our cups of coffee and allow you guys and gals to do the same out there. What are you drinking this morning? What's in your cup? Are you a coffee fan? Are you a tea drinker? Or perhaps do you have a soda at hand? Stay tuned with whatever beverage of choice you've got because we've got more conversation with Tate and Bundy coming up right after this. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Hey, who's up next week? Well, I'll tell you. It's Jim Willis. Jim's got a brand new book out called The Quantum Akashic Field, a guide to out-of-body experiences for the astral traveler. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking with him again on the broadcast. Jim Willis is up next week here. Our guest today is Taden Bundy, and I'm holding in my hand here a copy of his book, Beyond Lincoln. Uh, you can get more information on this book uh, and uh, copies available by going to Taden Bundy, that's T-A-Y-D-E-N, Bundy, B-U-N-D-Y, dot com, TadenBundy.com. Um, sometimes the paranormal starts out with a story that tends to build and morph and change and evolve 20th and Washington. 20th and Washington. 
I used to live near there as well. Yeah, let's talk about that place because I remember uh, many years ago before I got interested in any of this stuff that there was a rumor that if you went to that intersection and walked on all four corners, that southeast corner always would feel cooler as if there was a cold spot there. And then I started hearing, as did our uh, friend Dale Bacon, stories of what allegedly happened there. So tell us more about 20th and Washington. Sure. Uh, 20th and Washington is interesting because that's the only part of that story that is really considered haunted is that there's this cold spot there. Um, And what's interesting about that story is that although I could not find anything related to that specific corner, there was something that happened right across the street. And it was an unsolved murder that occurred in 1921 uh, uh, with a man named Adrian Barso. Mm -hmm. And he was coming home one night from a night out on the town. You know, he was hanging out at the university club in downtown Lincoln. And he left around uh, 11, 15, 11 o'clock. And some, for some reason, it took him 45 minutes to get home. Uh, yeah. And if anyone drives from downtown Lincoln, even today, uh, to 20th and Washington, it does not take 45 no. minutes. So they, we, no one knows where he was in that 45 minutes. Well, when he came home, he was uh, uh, walking in. And I've actually found various different versions of what possibly could have happened related to them trying to solve his murder. But... Um, most likely parked his car in the garage and walked up to the porch and he had called out as if he maybe saw someone. He said something like, get out of there and yelled it. And the people in the house actually heard it It was his family home. And uh, then a shot rang off and then they could hear him say, help, help. And then uh, he was shot again. And he was shot uh, the second time in the eye. And so that he was actually alive. His sister came out and uh, tried to help him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but he died on the way to the hospital or when he was being put into the ambulance. Uh, he, mm-hmm. was, he was very young. He wasn't, you know, he's a, according to the stories, you know, he's a young eligible bachelor. Uh, and uh, the ghost stories, you know, it, 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 it talks about a young man walking down the street and, uh, and, and he's, he's walking towards the intersection of 20th and Washington. And as he's walking down, a roadster comes up right next to him. And there's different versions, whether or not they spoke to him or not. Uh, some say that they had a conversation with him and then shot him. And then others say that they, they just drove by and shot him as they were passing him. And uh, as he laid on the concrete and as the people started flooding out of their homes to, to assist him, uh, he was trying to write something in his blood on the concrete. And that's where the ghost story, that's a ghost story related to that cold spot. And, uh, and uh, but paranormal experiences, that's the only thing that uh, it's ever related to it. There's nothing related to the home that, that I know of or anything else in the driveway where he, you know, passed away or where he was shot. Um, and it was just this young guy walking down the street and he gets shot on the corner and it's relatively close to to where Adrian was killed. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there's no form ever. I've never heard anyone say that they see a man standing there or that they, you know, hear anything. They just feel a cold spot there. So, mm-hmm. Well, and I have my own theory about that corner too, that uh, if you look at it, compare it to the other three corners, it looks different. How so? 
it's it's just constructed differently. Right. So that alone is going to call right. attention to that corner. <laughs> then, of course, you know, the energy trace theory. You have people visiting this area over the years, over and over again, looking for a haunting. There's the theory that the energy they leave behind actually contributes to the haunting. Whether or not there was one in the first place, it becomes haunted. Right. And, and Adrian Barso's murder was never solved. So you always mm -hmm. have a lot of like the stories in, you know, that I've researched over the years and for this book, a lot of them are, they're related to some tragedy, which, you know, this young man is killed. And as he's walking up to his own home, they can never figure out who did it. And in uh, a lot of stories that there's, you know, there's train wrecks, there's, you know, escapes from prison, there's uh, lynchings, things like that, where they're very traumatic events in time. Mm -hmm, and a lot of sure. them are either unsolved or the people involved were never caught. Mm -hmm. Well, Adrian was a, a grain dealer and they also imported lumber. And so back then, Lincoln was built by lumber brought in from outside because this was indeed a prairie. So if you were on that cutting edge of bringing lumber in, you made money hand over fist. So I've always wondered too if there was something about his business interest that played into that, that shooting. There were, there were allegations that he was having in the fair. Yeah, that he was something of a playboy. And that the husband or other partner lover found out and laid in wait for him. Um, we know from a police report that apparently he'd been in the house, and even though the family was there, and still won a flashlight that they later recovered. Tate and I, as we're sitting here, I've just had the, the thought here, you know, I met Marjorie Barstow uh, back in the 1980s. And she was an older woman then. She was very famous in what was called the Alexander Technique. Mm -hmm. She lived there in that house. And I'm wondering now, would she have been a younger sister of Adrian? I, I believe that that was his sister. Interesting. You've got a connection there. Yeah. How about I don't that? know if they ever mentioned the name of the person who actually, like the, the sibling that came out. I don't mm -hmm. know if they, you know, mentioned that particular name. I don't know for sure if it was her. Uh, mm -hmm. But I would assume that if, if you know, uh, they were related, obviously, brother and sister, they'd probably be pretty close in age relatively. So I would think that she would have, she could have possibly been the person that came out mm -hmm. of the house and actually tried to save him. I know the folks that, that live there now, uh, they're a great couple. Uh, Cinnamon, she operates the Novel Idea Bookstore and her husband, John. Um, but I'm aware they haven't had any reports of ghosts or phantoms, you know, walking around. Um, but yeah, that's an unsolved murder mystery. And we don't always have to have a murder to create a ghost. Um, mm -hmm. Ghosts can be a person who hasn't crossed over yet, who's died, that maybe has unfinished business. They may have um, a reason for sticking around. Their death may have been sudden. Their passing may have been untimely. Um, there's also the theory that uh, 
that ghosts sometimes could be ghosts of the living, where the old term used to be bilocation or a doppelganger or second body. Uh, and then another theory that ghosts could be people that walk into our dimension through some sort of a doorway and they're as startled as we are when they walk into this place and suddenly they walk back out into and go through that doorway and they're they're in back in their their realm so um, we collect these stories and maybe as kind of a way to wind things down here what do mysteries cause in you are mysteries a good thing or a in relation to the ghost stories? In relation to your life. <laughs> being, uh, being curious. Right. Um, I, I, if, with mysteries, you're, you're always trying to find more. So, I mean, you're with, like, for example, with the ghost stories. You know, if, if there's some, if, if you're with ghost stories, a lot of times you're getting just the, the bare bones of something. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's, there's got to be something behind that somewhere. Either someone made it up at some point or it actually happened and it's just sort of been, it's evolved over time and become something else, much like the 20th and Washington story uh, where, where somehow a car gets involved in, in, this, in this mix of, of the ghost story when in reality there was no car. And, and so, you know, just the, the mystery of that and sort of uh, just trying to uncover as much of the truth as possible and just sort of sharing the the history of of our towns and, and our cities and how that has shaped us, whether that's through, you know, the means of you know, ghost stories are my are my favorite thing to to really delve into and, and to study and to research and to find more about. And so when I'm thinking of mysteries in general, it's the mystery of of, of what's behind that story and why that's continued to to continue to strive for, for years uh, is, is part of the reason why I continue doing research and continue trying to, to spread the word. And, and also just, you know, the historical nature of, of, these, of these towns in general. I like to, to give you a little background of, you know, what happened in Fremont around that time period or what happened in Norfolk or what, what, whatever it might be, what was happening around that time period that, that led to, to the con the construction of maybe that building that's related to those ghost stories. So there's the mystery behind that, that that's, you know, sometimes solved, but then occasionally you'll have, there's parts of stories that I have no idea and I'm still trying to find out why, why they're happening or what's going on or. Is there going to be a part two? Uh, I am always working on, on a, a, a possible second book and I'm always, you know, whenever someone comes forth, I love, to hear, hey, you might you might have missed this in your first book. You might have missed this article, or you might have missed this element to this story that I heard this part of this ghost story. You know, I didn't see that in your book. Could you look into <clears throat> this? Yeah, I'm always open mm -hmm. to, to to new ideas, and you know, and I could be wrong about something in there. I could have been completely wrong about why something happened based on my research, and I maybe I missed something. Um, and, and I would love to hear why I'm wrong, you know? So I, I just, I, I want to have, to have as much of the truth as possible related to these stories so that I can tell the, the people and the town story as, as best as possible. Well, you're going to have a lot of people listening now and also <laughs> to the archive, right? The archive folks will be posted in about a week. Usually by next Friday, it'll be up at KZUM 
dot org backslash eup, and you can share the broadcast uh, with all your friends. So uh, as we finish things up here, for those that are listening that are intrigued that do have stories that are just burning to tell somebody, how can they reach you? Uh, you can reach me uh, uh, through my website, uh, through my email, uh, TaydenBundy at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Beyond Lincoln History of Nebraska Hauntings. I believe you can just put an at Beyond uh, Lincoln book and that will lead you to my page. Uh, I also have a blog, uh, that's the hauntedne.com, and I try to post every month about something weird or spooky going on in the state of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can also reach me through that email that's on there, hauntednebraska at gmail.com. Uh, Bunny at gmail is probably the best way uh, to, to contact me, though. We've just got a couple minutes left, so a question I've been kind of saving for the end here. Sure. Have you ever seen or experienced a ghost? <laughs> Um, I had a couple of weird experiences, uh, before just recently. And my wife will tell me that if I didn't tell the story today, that she would be super bummed. Oh, I just had something really weird happen a couple Let's weeks ago. So, um, and I am, you know, I'm skeptic. I try to, in, in the manner of, I want to try to, to rule out everything else before I say that it's an Good. apparition of some kind. Yeah, you should. And so we're driving down 48th Street going north, and I look over onto the sidewalk, and I see what appears to be a young girl who's blurry. She's very blurry, almost as if she was going very, very fast. She's on roller skates, older, you know, like not rollerblades, actual roller skates. She's wearing overalls and a striped shirt, and she has pigtails. She's probably around eight years old. And she towards me. She's coming towards us, uh, going south, and I can see her, and it's really fast. She's, like, blurry. What's the neighborhood? Uh, that would be, well, if I'll, I'll tell you here in a second where okay. exactly we are because I'll, I'll, it'll explain it here. But we're, dri- well, we're driving past the, the skate museum right there. <laughs> so I think that's 48th and South Street. Okay. So, so we're driving north, and, and I looked at her, saw her, didn't think anything of it, looked at my wife, or out and then at, like towards the window because I was driving out her, her window and looked back. So probably a second gone. She wasn't there anymore. So, wow. and, I, and, I, and I sat there for a second thinking about it before I told my wife because, you know, I was like, I don't know if I want to tell her this because I, she's going to be like, you saw a ghost. <laughs> and, and, but I can't explain it. I can't. That was one thing. And I've never seen anything before. It was in, we went to Villisca to the, the Moore family home there and stayed the night. And I saw a figure sort of what I thought sort of a shadow come out of a doorway, but sometimes shadows, not really sure, mm-hmm. but this was a person. This was a actual person on the sidewalk. And I have no idea how to explain yeah. why that happened. Wow. And yeah. it happened just recently, probably within the last few weeks. And that was the first time I'd ever seen anything that I couldn't actually explain. And we're right by the skating museum, which I thought was super interesting. Yes. And I know that, you know, sometimes spirits or energy can be attached to objects, and who knows? I mean, right in that area, and maybe that's something that she loved, and, and now she's skating around, and, you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's important to note, too, that I gather from the story that you just told that you and your wife were not driving around Lincoln looking for ghosts. No, we were just going to the north side of town. And yeah, I you just had something else. To that you were... glance over on the mm-hmm. sidewalk, and she was there, and I glanced back, and she was nowhere around. So Yeah. Those, those are interesting um, 
I saw a ghost in 2007 in Estes Park, Colorado, and it was the same kind of arrangement that we weren't looking at all for what we eventually, or what I saw. So, Tayden, I want to thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you And so I hope much. that you have a um, growing uh, and rewarding uh, literary career. And I'm sure that there's going to be a volume two here with all the stories that you're going to get that you've got right now sifting through there. So I hope it's a lot of fun for you along the way, too. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate being here, both of you. Okay. Lots of fun. Um, so the, the book, again, is called Beyond Lincoln, A History of Nebraska Hauntings. You can find out more about Taden, T-A-Y-D-E-N, Bundy, at his website, tadenbundy.com or hauntedne.com. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorney. Thank you so much for listening today. Stay tuned for Beta Radio coming up. We have no idea what they're going to be doing, but uh, they'll be here in a matter of minutes. Next week's guest... I thought you might ask that. It's Jim Willis. I just got his book called The Quantum Akashic Field, A Guide to Out-of-Body Experiences for the Astral Traveler. On this Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we give thanks very much for you folks out there. Uh, At 35 years, we are going strong. We're the world's longest-running paranormal talk radio program, and we're good for a few more years. If the creek don't rise and the coffee pot keeps turning out that that fresh, strong black coffee. Um, Appreciate you listening. Thank you so much, and until next week, walk in beauty.